0: We are so grateful to have you here at Propel Church with us today. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting one another. My name is Pastor Nick Newman, and I want to say welcome to you. On behalf of my wife, myself, and the rest of the team here, we are honored that you would choose to be our guest today for Easter. And If it is your first time, we would love to connect with you at some point. So if you're in person, be sure to stop by the New Here Lounge. We've got a gift that we'd love to give you, uh, just as a way of saying thanks for being with us today. And uh, in addition to that, if you want to take any kind of next step, you can just uh, scan that QR code on the back of your chair. But I'm not the only one who's grateful you're here today, church. Can you help me welcome every person here for the first time? Come on. And uh, some of you are tuning in online with us today. We are excited about that as well. Believe that God has some incredible things in store for you and I because it's Easter Sunday and we've got a lot of things to celebrate. We serve a God who isn't dead, but who's alive. And man, we are pumped about it. And so here's what I know for some of you. uh, This is like you only come to church a couple times a year. This is one of those ain't no shame in the game. We're excited that you're here, but maybe you're in the position where you're giving church the last shot. Maybe you're trying to figure out this whole God thing. I want you to know that Propel Church is one of those places where you can belong before you believe, and we're so honored that you would choose to spend uh, your Sunday morning with us. As we kind of dive into... God's Word today, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about for Easter, and so I was reading through the four Gospels, and if you're not familiar with what the Gospels are, it's four books that we find in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason why they're called the Gospels is because the Gospel is the good news of Jesus, and those four books really give us the good news of who Jesus is. And so, as we look through those four books, though, we may feel like "Ah, there's some differences, there's some inconsistencies. One time they talk about Jesus doing a miracle this way, and another time they talk about Jesus doing a miracle another way. But those aren't inconsistencies or contradictions. Imagine this for a moment. Four friends view the same thing taking place. They all recall that incident a little bit differently, Or you ever had a friend who's like telling a story and you were like, I was there. I did not see it from that (laughs) that angle. So they're not contradictions. It's just their viewpoint. And by the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, these men put pen to paper on the details that we need. And you may see one miracle that appears in one or two of the Gospels. But rarely do we find something that shows up in all four of those books. And when it does, I think it's actually really important for you and I to kind of lean into what that story is. And the story that we're going to look at today is about a guy named Joseph. And he's from a town called Arimathea. And so as we kind of look through the Gospels, we see this big picture of who Jesus is. If we only read one account, we don't get a good overview of him. But as we look at all four, we see a picture. So I'm going to give you all four of those accounts really quick to kind of show us who this guy Joseph is. Uh, Tech team in the back, can you pull my mic down just a little bit? I might want to get loud this morning. I'm a little scared to right now. Matthew chapter 27 verse 57 lets us know that Joseph of Arimathea is a, a rich man and a disciple. Now, this is incredibly important because um, back in that time, people didn't think that you could be both wealthy and a follower of Jesus. They thought it was one or the other. Matthew wants to make sure we know that he's a rich man and he's a disciple. And a disciple just means a follower of Jesus. Mark chapter 15 verse 9 tells us that he is a respected member of the council. It was this group of people called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees. And if you've read through scriptures or read through the stories of Jesus, you know that there were two groups of people who just loved to butt heads with Jesus. That's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it's interesting that there's a guy named Joseph. He's from a town called Arimathea. But what we know about him is he's a wealthy guy. He's a disciple, but he's a part of the group of people who like to butt heads with Jesus and trap Jesus. Luke tells us that he's a good and righteous man, but he didn't consent with their decisions. And the decisions that he's talking about are the decisions of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees and Sadducees, when Jesus is put on trial for crimes he didn't commit. These men wanted to punish Jesus ultimately, (laughs) To see him crucified and Jesus hadn't committed any crimes so Joseph of Arimathea he's a disciple he's a follower but he doesn't agree with the decisions that are going to be made but he doesn't really speak up and then in John we find out why he doesn't speak up John makes sure that we know he's a disciple but secretly he feared the Jewish leaders And so what I think is so incredibly interesting, I think sometimes we have a skewed view of what a follower of Jesus looks like. When we think about a follower of Jesus, we think about somebody who's kind of got it all together, got some things figured out, who's doing all the right stuff. But God's definition of a disciple and our definition might look a little bit different. Because when God has a definition of something, I think it holds a lot of weight and importance. And Joseph of Arimathea is called a disciple, even though he's got some fear of man in his life and he's afraid to speak up at the right time. Like when all the chips are on the table and Jesus needs somebody there the most, Joseph is silent, and yet he's still called a disciple. It just reminds me what Easter really is all about, and that is that none of us are perfect. And that's why we need Jesus. I don't know if you've got a skewed view of what a follower of Jesus looks like or not, but if you think that followers of Jesus are perfect people, they're not. In fact, maybe the reason why some of us are battling with such disappointment from people within the church or people who have called themselves followers of Jesus is because there were people who we expected to be a little better than they actually were. And I'm not saying you shouldn't hold people to a higher standard. I think if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, it should change the way you live, it should change the way you act, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you conduct life. But sometimes... We expect people to be perfect. And the only perfect person who has ever walked this earth is Jesus Christ. None of us are perfect. That's why we need Jesus. And the good news for every single one of us is that gives us an equal playing field. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Turn to somebody and say all. Turn to somebody else and say that's you. Right. I'm just, you gotta be careful. You wanna make it to lunch with these people, right? But the truth of the gospel is that every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect, and that's why we need Jesus in the first place. Every one of us has sinned at some point, whether you realize it or not. I don't think it's going to be very hard for you and I to realize that we've got some jacked up stuff going on in our heart, right? Even when toddlers are young and they start like, sometimes kids are mean. I'm not saying your kids. Some kids, right? Kids like walk up and they like snatch stuff out of other kids' hands. i Kids just get away with punching other kids in the face and then walking away smiling. Like, you just can't do that as an adult. Why do we do stuff like that? Well, Because inside of us, we're born into a broken and fallen world, and all of us have sinned. No matter what your upbringing is, your ethnicity, your social status, where you fall in the economic spectrum, every single one of us has an equal playing field in relation to sin because all of us have Romans chapter 6, verse 23, just three chapters later in Romans, Paul will teach us that the wages of sin are death. So not only have all of us sinned, but because of that sin, there's a cost that has been incurred on all of our lives. And that sin requires payment. And there's two ways to pay it. Either we pay it through our own death, or we have a sinless, perfect person die in our place. John 3.16 says it like this, hey, for God so loved the world. And what does that love look like? That love looks like realizing that you and I were jacked up, messed up, broken, hurting, had issues, and he still chooses to pursue us for the purpose of relationship. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then I love what verse 17 says. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I don't know what your background is. I don't know where you're currently at. I don't know if you are all in on this God thing or if you're crazy skeptical. But here's what I do want you to hear me say today. God's desire is not to come in and condemn and judge you. His desire is to save you and set you free. And so God would send Jesus to die in our place to live a sinless life. And Jesus would do just that. And from the very beginning, Jesus would live on mission. He would be focused and focused on dying in our place. So everything he would do would be in relation to that. But it wasn't this easy life that Jesus lived. His best friend ends up betraying him for some money. Others of his friends deny him and run away. Jesus would ultimately be charged of crimes that he didn't commit and he was found guilty. Those trials where Jesus is found guilty are really in the Gospels to represent the trials that we should stand on. Like when Jesus is found guilty, it's really us being found guilty. Because his trial was our trial. But Jesus stands in our place. Not only was Jesus charged of crimes that he never committed, but... Then they would choose to beat him in front of hundreds of people. In a large crowd of people, our Savior would be beatily, would be uh, harmfully beaten, and they would mock him, spit on him, and laugh at him. And it wasn't enough to just torture him. They then lifted a heavy cross onto his shoulders and had him carry it because they had decided that he was going to die by crucifixion. So as he carries this heavy wooden cross on this half mile journey uphill, they get to the place where the cross is going to be placed into the ground. And Jesus would lay the cross on the ground and place his body on it. Every one of the nails that they put through his hands and his feet are ultimately nails for you and for me. It's those nails that were our nails because the death he's dying is the death that each and every single one of us deserve. And so as Jesus dies on the cross, as he hangs there in grasp for air, it's in those moments that he cries out, it is finished and he dies and he's been telling people this entire time, hey, I'm going to die, but then three days later, I'm coming back. But the moment he dies, hopelessness enters into the picture. Yeah. It's almost like God can give us a promise, God can tell us something, but we don't actually believe him. Yeah. I know you've never struggled with that, I'm just telling <laughs> Hopelessness enters the picture, Jesus' body, he's dead, he was taken off of the cross, and what happens in this time period, is they didn't just place the body into a grave. When you die a criminal's death, you receive a criminal's burial, which is not a burial at all. Your body is placed onto a heap of other bodies for the dogs and the crows to pick it apart. And so Jesus' body is there laying on the ground, just like a criminal, and it's there where this guy Joseph of Arimathea comes into the picture. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. says that as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out from the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite of the tomb. So as I told you in the very beginning of this message... There are very few instances where all four Gospels record a story. But the reason why this story is so important and the reason why Joseph of Arimathea is such a crucial character in the resurrection story is because if there's no body, there's no resurrection. So it might seem small and insignificant, but just because it seems small doesn't mean it doesn't play a big picture in the plan of God. So five verses makes a really big impact in your life and in mine because what Joseph of Arimathea is doing is something that I believe is an incredibly beautiful picture of what takes place at salvation. What Joseph of Arimathea does is he grabs the body of Christ and he takes it, scripture's clear, to his own tomb. Now, he could have prepared. He could have cut a new tomb for Jesus to go in, but that's actually not how the gospel works. In order for you and I to be saved, something has to take place, and it's this, Christ has to die in our place. And when Christ dies in our place, that's where salvation happens. So what Joseph of Arimathea is doing is he's picking up The physical body of Christ, and he's carrying it to his own tomb. And when he gets to his own tomb, he's laying Christ's body in that tomb. So the place where Joseph's body should belong is now where Jesus' body resides. That's the good news of Easter. That's what God does for us. He dies in our place that death that you and I deserve, the death that we should have, the place where our body should be, now Jesus goes in that place instead of us. There's a powerful thing that's happening for Joseph of Arimathea and it's something that takes place for every single one of us. It's a beautiful exchange where Christ dies in our place. That death that we should have, Christ had. And God literally gets in your grave. God dies in your place. And you say, well, does that mean that I'm not going to die? No, you're still going to die. But, 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 but death is a good thing. We view death as an incredibly negative thing, but death is actually one of the biggest blessings that we get because of the fall. Because how cruel of a loving God to make us live in a broken and fallen world forever. That's the beauty of what takes place in Genesis in the garden. God says, hey, you know, they've sinned, they've fallen, and then he removes them from the ability to eat from the tree of life. Why? Because God's desire is not that we would live forever separated from his goodness. He desires us to be in perfection with him. But the only way that it does that is where Christ takes your place. You may be saying, well, Pastor, you find that anywhere else in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13 through 14. says that you were dead (coughs) because of your sin and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Um, I have gotten... A lot of speeding tickets in my life. A lot. Like to the point where, um, like, my lawyer just texts me and says, "Hey, your name came up. You want me to cover it?" <laughs> like, we're tight. Could you imagine this for a moment? Right? When I speed, I know I'm speeding. I know I've broken the law. I know I've done wrong. But imagine, like, I show up to court one day and I walk in and the judge is there and. And, and he acknowledges the fact that I've done something wrong and, and, uh, and I know, too, that I've done something wrong. But then the judge goes, hey, there's somebody who, um, we're actually, we're, we're, we're not going to charge you for the crimes you've committed. Um, there's somebody else that's going to take your place instead. I'd be like, well, praise God, you know. <laughs> but that's what Jesus does right. for us. When we think about something as as trivial as a speeding ticket, it's a no-brainer that if someone's signing up to take our place for the wrongs that we've done, we would jump on that in a heartbeat. But for some reason, when it comes to salvation, for some reason, when it comes to allowing Jesus to pay for our sins, we just kind of want to hold on to it. And it may be guilt and it may be shame. It may be us feeling unworthy of what we deserve. But friends, let me tell you, that's the beauty of God. Is that God doesn't desire to give us what we deserve. He gave Jesus what we deserve so that we could get what Jesus deserves. God dies in our place. It's a powerful, powerful exchange that happens. Another thing that I love about the story of Joseph of Arimathea is... He knew exactly what he was doing when he chose to place the body of Jesus in his tomb. See, Jews don't mix things. The moment you mix things, they're contaminated. They like to keep everything separate, whether it's milk or meat, things with a dietary life. So tombs would only belong to a single family. One, it's like one family per, to- per tomb. We, we got to, you know, experience some of that, right, when we got into covid Only if if they're not in your family, you don't get to eat with them anymore, right? That's kind of one family per tomb. But when Joseph of Arimathea is taking the body of Jesus and he's putting it into his tomb, now that tomb belongs to the family of Jesus. Whenever you and I allow Christ to die in our place, we may be giving up something, but we're entering into something even better. We're getting to be a part of a family. Our name is changing. We're not the person who we used to be. God is shifting some things in our life. But what's required is this one word called surrender. So if you're taking notes, here's the next thing. Surrender is necessary for Christ to take your place. See, Jesus has already died. This this event transpired over 2,000 years ago. Your debt has been paid for completely by God. But unless you choose to let Jesus die in your place, your debt may have been canceled, but you're not accepting the benefits of debt cancellation. so, So Jesus already paid for it. He already did it. And I think sometimes we think that hell is a place where God sends people. God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is a place where people go to pay for their sins themselves. God has paid the debt. He's made the way. He's covered the cost. And if you and I accept and put our trust in Jesus, then we're saved. We're saying, God, thank you for paying that debt. If we don't want to do that, then we, at the end of our lives as we stand before God, get to cover our debt ourselves. And the way that we do that is through eternal separation from God. But God made a way for us to be united with him. That's the beauty and the good news of Jesus. But in order to experience that, we have to surrender. Joseph may be in this moment giving up something that's incredibly important for his family. He's giving up his tomb. But sometimes it's not until we give something up that we actually experience life transformation. Joseph's going to get his tomb back because Jesus is getting up. You don't have to worry about getting your tomb back when the body walks out. I don't know. I mean, maybe everybody's going to want that tomb now. (laughs) But Joseph's going to get his tomb back. But it required him to surrender something on the front end. I think sometimes we hold off on giving everything to God or surrendering our lives to God because we're afraid of what we're going to be giving up. We're afraid and we don't know if if God's plan for our life really is something to prosper us and not to harm us. We're not super sure if we trust God that he knows what's best for our lives. So we hold on to control and maybe it's the control of your life, or maybe it's control of an individual area in your life. Maybe you're still retaining complete control of your finances because you're trying to figure out, does God actually know what to do with my money? Maybe it's your marriage, but I'm telling you, if you'll surrender control, if you'll let some things die, the only way to experience resurrection and new life is for something to die first. There's some things you've got to let go of and some things that you need to surrender before you can ever walk into what's next. Surrendering our life to Christ is the only surrender is the only way that this takes place because God is not a forcer, he's a fulfiller. God knocks at the door, but if you don't open, he stays outside. He's courteous. <laughs> He's knocking, he's waiting, he's he's going, hey, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm available, I've paid for your sins, I've covered the cost. But if you don't want to let me in, that's your choice. But when we surrender, when we let go, that's when we begin to experience life transformation. That's when we begin to experience something powerful in our relationship with God. Perhaps today one of the best decisions you could make it's to actually stop retaining control of everything in your life and just surrender it over to God. I love what Paul teaches us. Galatians chapter 20, it's, a, it's actually the first verse I read after I gave my life to Jesus. This is what Paul says. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, Christ's death became my death. I was crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to know what following Jesus is like, it's these two verses, one verse. You want to know what following Jesus is like? It's like dying to yourself and living for the one who gave everything for you. People talk about how, how, you know, man, we get to live our best life now. I don't think we do that. I pray we don't do that. (laughs) There's got to be something more to what we're experiencing currently, or there's no hope. But when I'm dealing with the mess of this world, when I'm wrestling through how to navigate hardships, trials, and circumstances, the best news of all is that my life is no longer lived for myself but it's lived for the one who gave everything for me. And my life is now lived in complete service and allegiance to do everything that God wants me to do in my life. And I'm fully surrendered to him. Today, you and I have the opportunity to make that decision. Here's the last thing for you this morning, is that it's not too late to make the decision to align yourself with Christ. The story of Joseph of Arimathea is really cool because we see this guy who was fearful of the religious leaders, fearful of the people he led with and probably led as well, because he was a well-respected man. We see a guy who When Jesus needs him the most, he doesn't speak up, he doesn't stand up, because he's got all these concerns about what people might think or what people might say. He's shy, he's timid, but then the cross happens. And we don't know if Joseph of Arimathea was at the actual crucifixion, but here's what we do know. After the crucifixion, something shifted for him. So I think Joseph of Arimathea was one of those guys who was in the crowd at the crucifixion and he's realizing as he's watching Jesus hang on the cross and die for him, he's realizing, I should have spoke up. Man, this was my shot. And then Jesus utters these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And yeah, at the time, people are beating him and mocking him, and you can think that, that, that Jesus is just talking to them, but I think Joseph of Arimathea was like, oh, he knows, and he still forgives me. He knows that I didn't stand up for him. He knows that I, I was kind of shy, and, and I was fearful of other people, and, and he's dying for me still. And when he understood the cross after his death, Joseph of Arimathea was changed forever. He saw the cross and realized what Jesus had done for him. And then he goes before the ruler of the land, before Pilate, and says, Hey, I want the body of Jesus. That's bold. That's courageous. That's laying all your chips on the table, because people are going to wonder, and they're going to talk, where did the body of Jesus go, and everyone in the town is going to go, Joseph of Arimathea took it. Knowing that that's the ultimate sign of allegiance, he threw his stake in the ground forever. And I say that to say, just because you haven't done things right in the past, doesn't mean that in view of the cross, you can't change from this day forward. Just because you haven't gotten it right back then doesn't mean that God didn't still die for you right now. And so today, I'm encouraging you to let Jesus Christ die in your place, to allow his death to be your death. And when you and I do that, I think that it's the starting point for all that God has for us. I'm not here to tell you that surrendering your life to Jesus is easy. I'm not here to tell you that when you surrender your life to Christ, that you become perfect and all-knowing and awesome. Your life is probably gonna get a little more difficult. That's not the encouraging word you wanted. I'm just being honest. When I hear people, when I hear preachers, sometimes they they tell people, man, following Jesus, it's the, the best and easiest decision you'll ever make. I'm like, one of those is true. It's not both. It is the best. It's not the easiest. Because the standards of God call us to live differently. And living different in a broken and fallen world is tough. That's why Paul says that you're now strangers and aliens as you walk this earth. Because this place is not your home. You were created for something more. So surrendering everything to Jesus today, I'm not telling you, is the easiest decision you'll ever make. But here's what I do know. For you and I, eternity hangs in the balance. Where we spend eternity, what happens after death is based on whether we let Jesus die in our place or not. And so in every single one of our worship experiences, not just Easter, at the end of every single message, there's always an invitation. There's always an opportunity for you and I to make a decision in view of the cross of Jesus to say, hey Jesus, I've decided to follow you. And following Jesus is not something that means that you've got it all figured out or you're gonna be perfect from this day forward. When Jesus invites somebody to follow, he invites guys like Matthew, who's a tax collector, which means he's a thief, and uh, and Peter. (laughs) And Peter, who, man, Peter just makes mistake after mistake after mistake. The initial step is to just follow. And then it's a daily decision to say, hey, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life, I now live in the flesh, in this broken, messed up world. I don't live it on my own. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So with every head bowed, every eye closed in this room today, I believe that some of you feel a a stirring or a pulling on your heart that you know you need to surrender your life to Christ. You know that you may have been 50% surrendered, 75% surrendered, but God is an all or nothing thing. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. So if you've been holding back, if you know today you need to let Jesus die in your place so that you can begin to have new life, I want you to boldly, for just a moment, throw your hand in the air and say, hey, that's me. Come on. I see those. Here's what we're going to do, church. Nobody's going to pray alone. We're all going to pray together. Will you say this out loud with me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name. Amen.